Instead of focusing on ourselves and all of our needs and wants, have you ever considered praying the intercessory prayer, Heavenly Father, please break my heart with the things that break yours? If you're an intercessor, perhaps you've already prayed that prayer for your family, friends, your city or nation. But one thing's for sure, it can surely be said that the heart of Jesus was broken with the things that break the Father's heart. The Jerusalem Channel is made with the support of you, our viewers. Thank you for watching. From the Sea of Galilee to the desert wilderness of the Negev, Israel is the living embodiment of God's covenant promises. What happens in Israel shapes the destiny of the world, and its eternal capital, Jerusalem, is never far from the news. Politicians may be confounded by the very presence of this tiny nation that's been restored after 2,000 years of exile by the Jewish people, but God's prophetic timetable is unfolding before our very eyes. The Jerusalem Channel provides a spiritual understanding of what's really happening in our world today, but we can only continue with your support. Please consider helping us to go and grow with this media ministry. You can make a gift through our website, our app, or by post. Our mailing address in the USA is Box 2768, Stanton, Virginia, 24402. In the UK, it's Box 109, Hereford, HR 49XR. Keep informed and pray for the peace of Jerusalem by partnering with the Jerusalem Channel. Shalom, I'm Christine Dark. In the scriptures, it's recorded three times that Jesus wept. Of course, it's possible that he wept on many other occasions that are not specifically recorded in the Bible. But I say this because the temperament of Middle Eastern men is not the stiff upper lip variety. In fact, many Middle Eastern men are poets capable of expressing powerful and deep emotions. And like the Hebrew prophet Jeremiah, it could be said that Jesus was a weeping prophet because the scriptures testify of him in Isaiah chapter 53, that he was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. That prophetic passage goes on to say, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. So tears were not foreign to Jesus. Yeshua is his Hebrew name. It's noteworthy that all three recorded instances of Jesus' tears are associated with the Mount of Olives. That fact is especially moving to me personally because the Mount of Olives is one of my very favorite places on earth. 
the Mount of Olives and its Garden of Gethsemane are saturated with the very presence of God. And it's always a special blessing to go there anytime. Some of the ancient olive trees in the Garden of Gethsemane date back to the time of Jesus. Every Bible believer, if at all humanly possible, should try to visit Gethsemane at least once in a lifetime to walk where Jesus walked and to pray where Jesus prayed. It just transforms your insights into your Bible reading. In a village on the Mount of Olives in the neighborhood of Bethany, the Gospel of John recorded that the Lord wept. That was the first recorded weeping episode of Jesus. It happened at the tomb of Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, Jesus' friends who lived in Bethany. Concerning this incident, John 11.35 is the easiest verse in the Bible to memorize, being the shortest. Just two words, Jesus wept. Lazarus had lain four days in the tomb, wrapped in grave clothes, and at that point his body would have begun to deteriorate. All hope was gone. John chapter 11 records that Mary fell at Jesus' feet and complained, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jewish people who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved and troubled in spirit. And we know that he raised Lazarus from the dead. This is because Jesus deeply cared about his friends and his own people. He saw the suffering and pain caused by death, and he was empathetic to their losses. We hurt when our loved ones hurt. Jesus' weeping at the tomb of Lazarus demonstrates his love and compassion. And when we have a relationship with the risen Lord, he stands with us in our despair and dark nights of the soul. He's already there in our valleys to meet us. One of the greatest gifts we can give a friend is to share their suffering. After all, Romans 12, 15 admonishes us to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And a Swedish proverb says, shared joy is double joy, but shared sorrow is half sorrow. The second occasion that Jesus wept was as he descended the Mount of Olives on his triumphant entry into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. Luke chapter 19 records that Jesus rode on a lowly colt, fulfilling the prophecy of humility in the Hebrew scriptures in Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. But the jubilant people were still hoping for a conquering king. Luke 19 says that they spread their cloaks on the road. And why did they do that? In ancient times, during triumphs, when a conquering general came into a city, the people spread their cloaks on the ground and so the crowds were welcoming Jesus like a conquering hero. Commentaries say that this was not a preacher's welcome. It was a welcome fit for a king or a god. And John 12, 13 adds the detail of palm branches. 
they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. But watch this. As Jesus approached the descent from the Mount of Olives and the whole multitude were crying out, peace in heaven and glory in the highest, some of the Pharisees in the crowd demanded, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus answered, I tell you, if they remain silent, the very stones will cry out. But as Jesus approached Jerusalem and beheld the city and the temple in its beauty, from that approach, what happened next? He wept in that setting and in that moment. The crowd is shouting and Jesus is weeping. The Greek word for weeping here in this passage means to bewail loudly. So Jesus wept and loudly prophesied to the city, if only you had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will barricade you and surround you, hemming you in on every side. They will level you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. And he said, they will not leave one stone on another. Why? He said, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. That important phrase, the time of your visitation, is not found in any other gospel. But thankfully, Luke recorded it in his gospel. It's such an important detail to understand Bible prophecy. This teaches us that God has specific moments in history when he visits nations with the move of God. And what will our response be? A visitation doesn't last forever. It's known in theology as a kairos moment, an appointed moment in time and history. Jesus is saying that Israel was missing its appointed time of visitation by Messiah as Redeemer. His heart ached because they were missing the timing and purpose of his mission. They were looking for a conquering king to defeat the Romans. And he didn't come to them riding on a war horse but on a lowly colt of a donkey. The second time Jesus is going to come at the end of history and he'll be riding a white war horse. Revelation 19:11 prophesies about the second coming of Jesus. And it says, and I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. But his generation weren't looking for the Lamb of God to take upon himself the sins of the world. He rode a donkey as the suffering and lowly son of Joseph. He came humbly to surrender his life for many. And like a donkey, he came to carry on his shoulders our burdens and iniquities. But he will return as the son of David and as the roaring lion of the tribe of Judah, when all Israel acknowledges him as the one who comes in the name of the Lord. In anticipation, let's cry out, Hosanna, O Lord, save us. We welcome both the Lamb of God and the Lion of Judah. We welcome the Son of Joseph and the Son of David. We welcome the Savior and the Mighty King. We declare, blessed is he who comes in the name of Adonai. But in that moment on Palm Sunday, 
Jesus wept with the eye of a visionary and he prophesied to the city, the day is coming when your enemies will barricade you and destroy you. And history bears witness that this is exactly what happened under Titus, the Roman general in 70 AD, about 30 years after Jesus prophesied it. Luke 19.43, in that verse, Jesus foresaw that the days were coming when their enemies would throw up a barricade against them and hem them in on every side. And this was fulfilled at the siege of Jerusalem. The historian Josephus informs us that Titus compelled the city to surrender by famine because he built a wall around the whole circumference of the city and hemmed in Jerusalem on every side. Then the Jerusalem walls were breached. Never was a prophecy more strikingly accomplished. The holy city was literally razed to the ground by the Romans. Titus even caused a plow to pass over the place where the temple had stood. And all of this was done according to Jesus' word because Jerusalem knew not the time of its visitation. That is, the people didn't know, the religious leaders didn't calculate the prophecy of Daniel that gave the precise time of Messiah's ministry. They refused to believe that Messiah had arrived on time. So Jesus wept, knowing the horrible judgment awaiting that generation. Jesus wept because Israel had been uniquely blessed to be a divine theocracy. Unto them belonged the glory, the temple service, the oracles of God, the covenants. But he was overwhelmed with tears because they were missing their divine appointment. The things that belonged to their peace were being forfeited. This is serious. Did you know that there are things that belong to our peace, but we can forfeit them also? The things that belong to our peace, wholeness, salvation, are provided for us here in the gospel. Yet we must receive them. We must receive these free, priceless gifts from God. They're not forced upon us by God. Mankind has a free will. The things that belong to our peace require that we repent, that we should undergo a change of heart and receive forgiveness of our sins to receive the Lord's pardon and deliverance through the gift of the Savior. Just as Jerusalem had a specific time, to receive the Lord's visitation, yet they miss the timing and opportunity. Let's pray that we secure the things that belong to our peace without forfeiting them due to delay or stubborn hearts. The Bible says now is the time of salvation. Now is the time we may seek the Lord while he still may be found. Otherwise, the things that belong to our peace and salvation may be hidden from our eyes. God forbid. Hardness of heart may result in losing our opportunity to receive the Lord. And how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, so great a pardon from sin, free and unmerited, because it's based upon the merits of God's only Son, the Savior? Think about that. Now, the third recorded reference in Scripture to the Lord's tears was as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night of his betrayal. Hebrews 5.7 gives us this commentary. 
It says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Mark 14, 36 also tells us that during his prayer in Gethsemane, Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup of suffering from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. You see, Jesus didn't want to die on the cross, but he was so thoroughly versed in the scriptures that he knew death was his mission as the Lamb of God. He knew he was destined to endure the pain and degradation to be the world's savior. With tears, as he wrestled in prayer, he submitted to God's will to embrace the cross. It was such deep and agonizing prayer that he sweat drops of blood. But after he came to terms with the will of God and heard God's final answer, he knew there would be no deliverance for him. I'm sure in those moments of severe testing, Jesus thought of Abraham offering up his son Isaac on the altar. And at the last minute, when Abraham's faith was thoroughly tested, an angel had intervened and stopped the sacrifice. The father made it clear to Jesus as he prayed in the garden that there would be no intervention. Gethsemane means oil press and olive oil is produced under pressure. And during the intense pressure of his prayers, Jesus knew that he must go all the way through to the end. Abraham had prophesied to Isaac, God himself will supply the sacrificial animal. In effect, Abraham had prophesied that God would supply himself through his only son, Jesus. Jesus was that sacrifice. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that Jesus prayed to his father three times, saying, My father, if it's possible, may this cup be removed from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. In these agonizing petitions, Jesus used the metaphor of a cup. Let this cup pass from me. But he submitted to the will of God, saying, If it's not possible, Father, for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. So his prayers revealed a mindset just before the crucifixion of submission, total submission to the Father. The cup of suffering was, he was about to endure was full of bitterness with the expectation that he would have to drink it to the last dregs. Jesus had used the same metaphor in Matthew 20, 22, when prophesying of the future suffering of his disciples, James and John. In his prayers, Jesus expressed the natural human desire to avoid pain and suffering. However, when God gave his final answer, Jesus submitted and his tears were finished. This teaches us that every major decision in life should be preceded by prayer. And when the will of God is thoroughly known, peace and resolution comes, even when facing a terrible death. Scripture doesn't record that Jesus shed any more tears after Gethsemane. He was now thoroughly resolved to lay down his life. The father's final answer revealed what Jesus really had known all along. Because in John 10, 11, Jesus had said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And in John 15, 13, he had also said, 
Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And again, in John 10, 17, Jesus said, The reason the Father loves me is that I lay down my life in order to take it up again. You see, he believed in his resurrection. But by going to the cross, he was being obedient to the will of the Father. He was fulfilling his mission as the Lamb of God. Jesus added in John 12, 27, And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause, I came into this hour. So the cross, he knew, was no mistake. It was no mishap in history. In fact, in the New Testament, in Acts 2, 23, we're told that the Lord's death was by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Jesus never had a victim mentality. He accepted his mission voluntarily to bear the pains and sicknesses of the people. You might think that Jesus would shed some tears on the way to the cross due to his intense pain, the injustice, the humiliation, and his weakness from the beatings and flogging. But there's no recording in the Gospels of his own tears on the Via Dolorosa, the way of sorrows. But others were crying. The daughters of Jerusalem who followed the procession were weeping, or as the text literally says, they were bewailing and lamenting the Lord's death sentence. Before his encounter with the daughters of Jerusalem, Jesus had been silent in his sufferings. If you check a red letter Bible highlighting the words of Jesus in red ink, he didn't answer his tormentors. He gave his back to the smiters. But now, unexpectedly, Jesus breaks his silence to address the wailing women. And by the way, these are not his female disciples who followed him from Galilee and who stood at a distance from the cross watching these things. Most everybody has seen Middle Eastern women on TV news thrashing around and bewailing a murder. So you can imagine what this scene may have looked like. These wailing bystanders knew that the great miracle worker had done nothing to deserve such dreadful treatment. And so they cried out in sympathy for him. They wanted him to know that they were bitterly disappointed. They were shocked and even incredulous. And in the sovereignty of God, Jesus managed to stop the procession long enough to give a final teaching, even in his weakened condition and pain. And his message to the daughters of Jerusalem boiled down to the same pronouncement he had prophesied earlier over Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. His selflessness is phenomenal. He doesn't want pity from them. Daughters of Jerusalem, he said, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when people will say, blessed are the barren women. Blessed are the wombs that never bore and breasts that never nursed. At that time, he said, they will cry to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. And then he spoke his last parable. For if men do these things while the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? The daughters of Jerusalem must have been shocked at his rebuke. 
After all, they were expressing grief over injustice. The fact that an innocent man was being led like a common criminal to be crucified. But rather than accepting their pity, he corrected their behavior. Jesus was not going to accept a pity party. And as one theologian pointed out, how could he be so insensitive to their sensitivity? But Jesus was saying to the daughters of Jerusalem, you've got it all wrong. You must weep for yourselves and for the future of your children. He saw in that awful moment the bigger picture because Jesus is the king of compassion. Weep for yourselves and for your children because he said the days are coming when they're going to say, blessed are women who haven't had children and the people will wish for the mountains to fall on them. Jesus was quoting directly from Hosea 10.8. He foresaw God's chastisement upon Jerusalem because they had missed the time of their visitation. Again, Jesus was prophesying the soon coming destruction of Jerusalem under the Romans. Because the powers that be had missed their time of visitation, he foresaw the time of judgment when his people's sufferings would be so great that men would cry out for the hills to cover them. And then in Luke 23, 31, Jesus spoke his last parable. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? A dry tree is dead and deserves to be cut down, but a green tree doesn't deserve to be cut down and burned. Jesus meant, if the Romans will put me and my innocence to death, then think what they'll do to you. If God will allow the Romans to do this to me, think what God will use the Romans to do to Jerusalem for not recognizing your visitation. What is the bottom line of everything I've shared today? It's this, the cross is not about gory details. It's about our need of repentance. None of the gospel writers, nor the apostle Peter in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, made a point of dwelling on the gruesome details of Jesus' execution, like some of the movies do. The gospels just say that they crucified him. God wants us to focus upon our sin and our need to repent, and most of all, not to miss our time of visitation. The commentaries teach us that at critical moments in its history, God visits a nation. He sends a messenger. He bids a nation to repent or to carry out some act of justice. Perhaps the opportunity is taken and the nation is blessed. But if the opportunity is neglected, when the opportunity goes unheeded and passes, the result is a national decline or judgment because the nation didn't know the time of its visitation. And it's the same way with the church. God visits his church from time to time to revive it. Sometimes after years of apathy, apostasy, and darkness, he raises up prophets and teachers who will insist upon some forgotten aspect of truth. In a visitation, the church is called back from lethargy and errors to seek the things that belong to our peace. But if God's invitation, if God's visitation is set aside or is unwelcome, the day sadly passes. So Lord, we ask you to raise up an army of intercessors in these dangerous end times that we might weep as Jesus wept over Israel, 
that we might weep over our nations and over individual souls who need a divine visitation. As the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.11, Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men and women to receive the Savior while he may be found. Let our prayer still be, Lord, break our hearts with the things that break yours. There's much more to share with you at our website, exploits.tv, where you can watch our free video library and find news on current and end-time events. Our ministry is called Exploits, based upon Daniel 11.32. And in the meantime, you can find me on social media. And don't forget, download our free Jerusalem Channel mobile app, where you can watch all our videos on your phone or tablet. The grace of the Lord be with you. Until next time, I'll always be contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem. Maranatha, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I'm Christine Dark. Shalom.